Welcome to the podcast of the Centre for the History of the Emotions at Queen Mary, University of London. I'm Jules Evans. I'm a research associate at the Centre. And this podcast is particularly connected to a Wellcome Trust funded research project at the Centre called Living with Feeling, which is looking at the connections in philosophy and history and psychology and culture uh, between emotions and health. So on this podcast, we will be um, interviewing people that whose work we like, uh, which which is connected to this uh, field of uh, of emotions and health, uh, and we'll also be putting up uh, recordings of of talks at the centre. So for this first podcast, um, I went to interview uh, one of my favourite uh, writers, uh, Jeff Dyer, who is a novelist and a non-fiction writer who um, over the last uh, 20-25 years has written on everything from the history of the Somme to uh, jazz music to the history of photography to D.H. Lawrence, all in his own um, inimitable style. Um, And one of the threads that runs through his work is an interest in peak experiences, in moments of of heightened and even ecstatic uh, consciousness, whether um, he attains that um, on a, a secular pilgrimage to a great work of art, or by going to a full moon party, or to Burning Man, or by um, uh, taking uh, acid and wandering around the streets of Paris. Um, and he's explored this um, this kind of search throughout his work, including in his uh, in his new book, uh, White Sands. Um, and I was interested in that because I'm researching um, the the history of ecstatic experiences in Western culture, particularly in, in modern culture. How do we get out of our heads and how can those kinds of um, ecstatic moments be good for us and bad for us? Uh, and I was a little nervous going to interview uh, Jeff because I thought I wondered if you would be rather a, a impatient with um, with academics uh, and 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 with my questioning in in that he's such a mercurial and, and quick witted sort of person uh, and writer, but he turned out to be a a, a lovely person to interview, uh, and it was uh, it was very enjoyable for me at least. And so, um, without further ado, here's um, here's the interview. In one of your books, you, you talk about um, a kind of state of consciousness when you feel in the zone. Yeah. And you say, uh, I always know when I'm in the zone. When I'm in the zone, I don't wish I was anywhere else. Whereas when I'm not in the zone, I'm always <laughs> wishing I was somewhere else, wishing I was in the zone. Yeah, rather nicely put, I think. <laughs> so, can you... Um, would you extrapolate on that? What, what, what the kind of peak experiences are for you? Yeah, I guess it's like that thing which I remember when I went to do this uh, aborted attempt at a a free-fall parachute jump and among all the skydivers who love skydiving, they say Mm -hmm. there's skydiving and then there's waiting. Um, Similarly, when I've just read that great William Finnegan book about surfing, Barbarian Days, and, you know... I completely believe Finnegan and all these other people who say surfing is so great that really, you know, uh, that's what that's what your life is centred on. And at one point, you know, there's a load of waiting around if you're a surfer. And the guy says to his wife, you know, 
Well, if you were really into shopping, you'd spend a lot of time in malls. Actually, you'd spend even more time waiting for malls to open. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's the peak experience comes in all sorts of shapes and forms. If you're a dog lover, it would come at Crufts. Mm. It could be, uh, for many people, it's romantic. Um, mm. And that's something we should certainly sort of talk about, I think. But it's those moments when uh, I think that you just really feel that you're in the centre of your life, that you're living exactly the life that you've always that this is what you've wanted to do. Mm. But I emphasise again, that can manifest itself in all sorts of different circumstances and, and occupations. And for me, I think it would be those, I would think there'd be, these would some of, be some of the moments that would come back to me on, on, my, on my deathbed, really. Mm. Um, and, yeah, there's just that sense of being in this, really in the, in the centre of your of of your life yeah and i guess the other thing to say is just as they can manifest themselves differently in different circumstances for different people so one's idea of a peak experience doesn't remain the same throughout one's life right. you know um the dylan line the same thing i would want today i would want again to tomorrow really doesn't apply i'm just going to do it on this as well That's okay the worst Back up. Is the, yeah. yeah yeah redundancy <laughs> So, for example, you uh, you might have got a peak experience from raving when you were in your 20s and 30s, but um, by 40 you go to an EDM festival in Denver, was it? <laughs> it's in Detroit. Detroit. Uh, um, and, and, it, and it seems like a kind of Nuremberg rally to you, and everyone <laughs> seems far too young. It's like, yeah, Nuremberg on E is the joke. Yeah. Except you've been very uh, charming about the age of, of these things, because I think, actually, I... The weird thing for me is that, so I was living in Brixton in the 1980s, and, you know, when that first summer of, you know, when the first ecstasy thing happened, and, you know, I was aware of these things going on, and I liked, you know, I was part of, you know, I was part of a whole druggy world, mm. but I was such a jazz nut that I, every fibre of my being was opposed to this idiotic dance music. <laughs> so I actually only really got, you know, my interest in that kind of music was probably at its peak when I was 40 <laughs> yes. um, you know um, was, it, was it very much uh, conditional on drugs I mean do you listen to uh, trance music now uh, I don't now but I mean there's so much to sort of so many ways in which I'd want to qualify that I mean uh, fortunate thank god I did get into electronic music uh, you know eventually and it would have been insane not to be into it in the sort of uh, late 90s or whatever, because, you know, at any one time in music, a certain kind of music is where it's happening. So, you know, in jazz in the from the late 50s to the, you know, through the mid 60s, it's so exciting. It's changing almost every week. Mm. Same was true of electronic music. If you think of how quickly drum and bass sort of went through every permutation of which it was capable mm. without ceasing to be drum and bass so it was really happening then and now I'm not listening to trance now partly because I've grown out of it mm. but also because although EDM as you say is really huge in, in the states now uh, musically it had it, it, it extinguished itself yeah. you know I think it wasn't exciting anymore mm. um, and um, you know would it was 
is obviously much improved by um, uh, uh, be, you know being on on drugs, but it was never music that was heard at its best in the living room anyway. Mm. You know, so it was uh, um, it had that other aspect of the peak ex- that's so common to many peak experiences that it was place specific. It was a right. moment and a place. It mm. wasn't the kind of thing you could you know just endlessly replicate by listening to the same music at at home it was you know so bound up with the people you were with you know blah 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 because yeah. cheese you don't need me to yeah. tell you that but yeah a place and a time a moment and your um your new book white sands uh, explores that idea of place uh, and its connection to kind of peak experiences mm. um you use the phrase of lawrence's um, nodality yeah i guess he's not referring to a peak experience because that's something that occurs in one's own life mm. he's talking about the enduring power that certain places have and their yeah. ability to exert that to, to manifest that that power so in a way he's talking about something that's the opposite of a peak he's talking about some sort of radioactivity that is permanently yeah. Yeah. emanating uh, a bit uh, like the, a bit like the numinous a kind of numinous quality uh, yes, that that it would it would really be that. Yeah, mm. um, and, and you felt that in places like some temples in the Far East, um, some uh, the Somme you visited. The, the you know yeah yeah ab- absolutely yeah and you know so the the Somme visit was a yeah it was sort of a big experience for me, but the you know the place was there um, uh, you know permanently um, uh, exerting it, its, its, its power. So mm. I guess that's actually, it's, so quite often I'm interested in this thing of the coming together of that which is permanent, you know, a place, a mark on a landscape or a landscape itself, and then that which is passing and transient, i.e. the mm. sort of human dramas that happen there, so that in the new book, they come together in that see the sequence in Forbidden City, where you've got forbidden the Forbidden City, this you know place which has its you know well attested to you know it's a world heritage site or whatever, and then there this kind of you know romantic drama, that thing which is almost the ultimate transient thing, that kind of th- moment when you find yourself falling for somebody, you know, mm. falling having transience built into it, you mm. know. So yeah, I like I like that interaction of the you know what well, to juxtapose your kind of chattering mind to something where there's more of a sense of kind of eons and uh, yeah, except also it's not just the chattering mind. I mean, in the I think the romantic thing is so uh, important because the it's obviously it's one of the for me that thing of falling for somebody and you know God I mean cliched word heteronormative but for me that kind of thing when you you know there is a woman that you see and you know that that those moments of the kind of you know god I really like her and that kind of sense that you go oh maybe she likes me no I must be deluding myself Mm. those things are so those are magical moments in anyone's life and the symptoms of that the clothing has changed the 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 manners have changed but essentially the symptoms have remained I would say pretty much unchanged since the the days of well I was going to say Jane Austen but actually from you could go back to probably you know the Greek myths you know it's Mm. it's it's really 
unchanging and mm. um, you know it's built into our you know in, into us as a species so mm. uh, uh, that's the lovely thing there is that it's so intensely specific mm. it involves two very specific people uh, in a precise place but you you'll really feel you're part of some vast continuum of you know human uh longing and attraction yeah, and romance sure. yeah yeah so when you talk about the, the kind of power of a place independent of the people who visit it yeah um do you mean that in a in, in, in a kind of you're you're obviously a, a, a an atheist writer but you're you're i think of you as a kind of post-religious writer and you're oh, interested yeah. in the um what remains mm. of some of these habits and you know in, in a post-religious world so do you mean that idea of power in a kind of you know in a a cult sense in the way that walter benjamin might walk around paris on on hash and feel a kind of occult power in certain bits mm. no i don't think was it paris or was it marseille that he was really uh uh sort of stoned in <laughs> yeah um so um i i what was the op- it was either the benjamin model or what was the other one well i i mean do you, do you think of it as as some kind of spiritual uh, resonance yeah. yeah it's certainly spiritual and actually i i mean so the place I always think of in this regard is, is Varanasi. So I go right. to Varanasi as a somebody almost entirely ignorant of Hinduism, absolutely atheistic, you know. But you go to Varanasi, and what's his, what's his name? Richard Dawkins. He'd be it would be entirely irrational of him not to feel that God. This is a place where every building is humming with some sort of special power. Because the fact of Hinduism of being practiced there for so long, that belief system has seeped into every right. molecule of every building. Mm. And even if I mean, you just you'd have to be not just blind but totally insensitive not to not to sense some sort of wave or whatever the wor- yeah. word is coming from from this place. Mm. So it's a question of just being responsive to to what's going on. Yeah. And you're right in this, you know. Yeah, I. I I'm very happy to be a post-religious person, but all that means is that one is so conscious of the huge void that 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 that's left. So, just today, I was, you know, I'm really I like churches from the outside. The insides of churches I always find disappointing. But today, I went to the polling station, which was in a church, um, and I was quite moved by the whole thing of just the the humble way that democracy is enacted you know mm. you've got these nice volunteers or whatever and you've got a bit of paper and it's all very local and jumble sailing mm. and at the same time it's we're in this church and there's a nice notices up saying you know to, to we want to give all go to visit the prisoners in wormwood scrubs and give them a chance for support and prayer and you know i just felt this is a this is a nice place mm. you know um and god knows a lot of awful stuff is connected with religion and you know mm. I thought this is you know yeah there's probably some nice mm. uh, I really don't want to sound too Californian but mm-hmm. you know there was it was a place where some goodwill had been yeah. uh, harnessed and centred and you know I could feel my eyes prickling with tears because of this combination of mm. this humble day to day thing of democracy and that this was a, a place where it looked quite an old church, but you could imagine that 
you know, in some equivalent place, some Quaker place, mm. back in whenever it was, people were meeting and, you know, handing out, you know, let's let's abolish slavery sure. uh, petitions. So yeah. I, I like that. I mean, sometimes a place can acquire power because something terrible's happened there as well. Yeah. Like you talk about, um, you mentioned in your, in your new book, White Sands, about uh, the grave of a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. And that reminded me of Wordsworth's Prelude, which I understand you one of your kind of favourite books or um, and he talks about one of his spots of time well, is yeah. um, somewhere where someone was hung and it's yeah. funny because we think of him as this kind of pastoral picturesque but actually some of his moments of the sublime are quite kind of gory oh they really are you yeah. know yeah and then yes I mean the, the spots of t- Wordsworth's spots of time in the prelude were my introduction I think to the idea of the peak experience for him they occur in childhood but you're absolutely right. You know, there's the he comes. You know, there's the drowned person whose gar- whose clothes are left on the shore. These mm-hmm. garments telling a plain tale. Yeah. Uh, the murderer. Yeah. The, you know. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he imagines himself in a, in a line stretching back to you know human sacrificing druids yeah, in yeah. one particularly dark. Scene. Oh my word! Exactly. You yeah. know, and that is you know, Stonehenge certainly has some of that power although fuck the uh, you know the english heritage or whatever have done their best to completely mute that power haven't they with mm. those catastrophic planning uh, things whereas you know it's great the kind of ravey pagan druid hippie things they've kept the power going i, mm. I, I feel and resisted its kind of tea shopization uh, but oh my god yeah i mean those mm. sort of atrocious places yeah, they've, I mean, it's one of the things that Rebecca West talks about in mm. Black Lamb, Grey Falcon. You know, that these sites of uh, sacrifice have their have their their power certainly. Mm. Mm. I mean, in terms of uh, time, it seems that one of the things you're interested in exploring in peak moments is what it does to time. So you've said that there's a friction between the Western mind, the modern Western mind, and time, and maybe in some of these moments that friction is eased so mm. like there might be moments of trance or absorption which change the kind of ordinary experience of time so in in your books you have moments where you feel a kind of eternal recurrence for example things happening again or you, you talk about time you know getting frozen in trance moments mm. or moments where you feel a connection to the ancient past or moments where you imagine the distant future looking back on the present. So you're, you, you're, you, there's the moments when time, ordinary sense of time, is played around with, isn't it? Yeah, and you're absolutely right, and it, and it manifests itself in many different ways. Mm. But, you know, that the Nietzschean idea of the eternal recurrence, my God, he's referring to the peak experience there, you know, when he says, you know, have you ever known a moment when you'd say, yes, you know, this is great and I'll live my whole life again with all its suffering just so I can come round to this moment again. Yeah. You know, and it's quite common in, um, you know, in uh, sort of situations, you know, where people are having an extreme uh, thing and they'll say something like, you know, whatever the price I pay for this, I won't regret it. You know, Mm. to my dying day, I won't regret it. Of course, when you're on your deathbed or whatever, you know, quite often you then do regret it. But Mm. the the power of those moments when you feel that the moment has, is so great that it's vindicated the entire life. Mm. I feel that 
need nobody has expressed that more more wonderfully than than Nietzsche. You mm. know, and you know he was adamant that that the eternal recurrence is for the most part a terrifying thought. Mm. You know, because there's so many shitty things you go through. But do you think? I mean, the peak experience as a secular version of kind of religious ecstasy. I mean, it, in some ways, it's a resistance to time and and entropy. But in other, in some ways, it isn't, isn't it? Because we still die. Yeah, and also, I mean, I guess in Nietzsche's ideal of that would be some sort of Buddhistic-like thing, where every moment mm. you're at sort of so at ease with the idea that this is going to happen now, this is going to recur now and now throughout all eternity. Mm. Of course, that's rather difficult to sustain on a daily basis when you're getting the tube or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm. Um, but uh, I can imagine that through you know various sort of med- forms of meditation and purifying your heart of all ill thought that you could in- exist in a state of sort of you know uh, permanent bliss like mm. that i've got no real desire to achieve that myself yeah. i'm much happier with the idea of what's important to me is that i don't enter the sort of desert the sort of tundra phase whereby one is no longer capable of, 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 of these kind of peak experiences, which can mm. happen, uh, and which it can happen much more... E- you can corrode like that much more easily in, in England than in California, I think, mm-hmm. you know, because California is so... You know, so much of its mumbo-jumbo is all about that, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. So, um, in terms of your uh, life philosophy, I mean... One way I've thought about putting it in terms of and, and, and peak experiences place in that kind of attitude to life is um, that in a post-religious world where one could be crippled by a sense of purposelessness, mm. um, a new sort of secular spirituality could be constructed through a search for peak experiences in the arts, in nature in numerous places, in sex in partying and festivals. Mm. Um, is, would that, is that an approximation to some of your attitude to life, would you say? Yes, as long as it didn't start sounding like some sort of uh, ideal gap year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's all starting... It, there's elements of... When, it, when you mentioned all those things, I yeah. was thinking... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, I could, you could do that for, in six months in Thailand. You could have all of those, uh, all of those things. So, yeah, and... So I guess, I mean, more seriously, that's all great, unless it becomes a kind of... I can so see the ease with which that could fall, that could be co-opted by some sort of part of the sort of branded leisure industry. Yeah, but let me put it another way. You've explored that kind of attitude to life in your work, including a lot of the downside of it as well. Oh, yeah. Um, Would you say that that kind of attitude is quite uh, common in our culture? Yeah. Yeah. The search for kind of limit experiences. Yeah, I, I think I think that is. Yeah, um, but yeah, I'm just so resistant to anything that kind of climaxes with the idea of a bungee jump kind of uh, <laughs> uh, thing. You know, so I think in a way I'm more. I mean, yeah, I mean, so I'm sort of happy with this. I'm sort of I'm certainly aware that uh, of what for me are the, the moments that make life worth living mm. like that mm. um, I suppose it was it's an attitude that you explore particularly in that in yoga for people who can't be bothered to yeah. do it 
Um, and that, I mean, that book, you, you, you know, you go to a full moon party, yeah. um, you're Burning Man, mm. um, uh, New Orleans, other, you know, and it's, um, it reminds me of this line from uh, Alex Garland's book, The Beach, where he says, um, for mine is a generation that circles the world, uh, searching for something we haven't tried before. <laughs> and, and as you say, that, that, and this is, you know, there's a risk in basically the romantic cult of epiphanies mm -hmm. that, you know, it turns into um, uh, tourism. Yeah. Uh, you know, around the time of the prelude, suddenly the Lake District is flooded with people. You can't um, move on Scarfell yeah, from um, people that's elbowing right. each other for the sublime experience. Wordsworth opposes the extension of the railways. To yeah. You. Yeah. Right. So th I suppose that is a, a, a that is a risk, isn't it, of our culture's appetite yeah. for these things? Is is there's a kind of um, peak experience economy that Indeed. rapidly springs yeah. up and goes yeah. sure, you know. And, Yes, indeed. Yeah, so it's but the, it's an economy because it's catering to this great need that we've described as you know arising in in various in, in various ways, and it's both an expression of a hunger for sensation, the mm. bungee jump thing, but as you were saying quite rightly, of some kind of uh, you know part of us that's still there in the space that was previously you know nicely occupied by um, by religion. Yeah, I guess. Since you've made the comparison, mm. I mean, there's so many continuities between the yoga book and White Sands. Yeah. But White Sands is very notably a drug-free book, yeah. which isn't to say, I mean, it's really not, I'm really not becoming one of those people who sort of say, oh, yeah, those great times that you had on ecstasy at, at that night, it, was, it wasn't real because it was drug-induced. But that yeah. just seems nonsensical. But... Um, uh, the, that is a that is a difference, I think, and it's yeah. probably just rather sadly a difference of age, really. Right, you know, right. Because the although, you know, I, I, yeah, because I think the the, the just because it takes so you know the, the the effort of the recovery from these things is so much, mm. you know, it has to be done more and more sparingly. Yeah, and also the circumstances have to be so right, not just in that moment, but you have to think of everything that might occur in the sort of four days afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah it seems like uh, a happier book as well because ah. yoga for people who can't be bothered to do it, even though it's about peak experiences. Your your the narrator is kind of falling apart as well. Through yes, it. Uh, mainly for comic effect. <laughs> mainly for comic yeah, effect. Yeah. But I, I mean, I I wondered as I've been writing my own book about ecstatic experiences and you know four years is quite a long time to write about <laughs> ecstatic experiences is that um i you know i begin to kind of wonder if if our culture's um you know hunger for peak experiences for limited experiences for the highs is can can end up being um bad for people in mm. the sense that you know there's the kind of swing from the Oh yes, we're in. We're here. We're in yeah, the zone yeah, to yeah. to the kind of disappointment, boredom, you know, the flat periods in between. I mean, surfers, for example, talking about you know, you mentioned surfing earlier. Like you know, Laird Hamilton will talk about feels he only really knows who he is when he's surfing a thirty yeah. foot wave, mm -hmm. and in between he feels just depression and yes, <laughs> and, yeah. and boredom, and in, like in 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 Wordsworth as well. There's the kind of so often the kind of 
oh, I don't feel as ecstatic as I used to when I was a kid or whatever, when I was a teenager. Yeah, I mean, so the prelude is so, you know, the fact that he couldn't bring it to a finished form and just, you know, the, yeah. Those, yeah, anyway, yeah, 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 that's there. So, yes, of course, there is, there is all, all of that. My God, I think it's possibly particularly acute in the lives of athletes, really. Mm. You know, because you think of, I mean, think of being somebody like Diego Maradona, you yeah. know, winning that, that World Cup in 19... Just the um, unbelievable high that he was on, especially given that he'd come from the sort of slums of the earth. Mm. And, you know, as an athlete, by the time you're 35, it's it's pretty much over, it's you know. Uh, and, you know, back in the day for footballers, when the choice was to basically open a sports shop or, uh, or open a pub, you know, the it was, it was really, yeah, just incredible mm. contrast. You know, imagine being George Best. You know, it's just yeah. all beyond board. All any any number of the, these yeah, people. Yeah. So there's that, mm. um, and uh, yeah, and then in our culture generally, you know, I was naive enough to think in the 1980s that this mm. whole ecstasy revolution, you know, which was changing Britain so much and alcohol sales were going down and it seemed that, you know, it was really, I really thought it was changing. Of mm. course it didn't and the booze, in, you know, boo, you know, the booze came back with yeah. a vengeance. But it um, may have changed some things. I mean, some people think it had a role in uh, getting rid of football hooliganism for a bit. Oh, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's me. Yeah, so maybe it, it did, mm. but it wasn't the permanent revolution the, the total revolution we thought because we hadn't uh, factored in enough of the the sort of come down yeah, you know? yeah. I also think about speaking of drugs that time in the 70s when in America you know everybody's taking coke and it all seems great you know yeah. and everyone's it's I, and I bet the coke was of a quality that I've never you and I have never experienced mm. especially if you were in LA and well you know part of some sort of Hollywood set yeah but god now I mean the the it's so obvious that that was really not a sustainable lifestyle and the, the, the psychological damage is particularly insidious, I think, yeah. with, with, with cocaine like that. I mean, I, I read um, But Beautiful when I was in New Orleans um, and in some ways there's, there's a comparison to this theme in that you explore um, a group of jazz musicians who try to live right on the edge of creativity mm. um, avoiding cliches constantly kind of burning with uh, f fresh ideas and 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 the toll that takes on them so it, it, it's 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 a kind of a, a catalogue of destruction in some ways the book I mean mm. um, so many of the great musicians um, that you talk about end up a a addicted yeah. or um, dead or or in the loony bin mm. um, is that also kind of you exploring in some ways the, the dark side of that romantic cult for for you know um, heightened experience and heightened creativity yeah I mean certainly that's there very nakedly in jazz but I think in that book maybe I was so taken with the myth of it yeah. that maybe I understated the other possible alternative which is that yeah you just keep gigging and working and actually probably if you went to see X or Y as he toured night after night, you'd find that that spawn, you know, that that kind of thing of the, you know, the, the peaks were quite, uh, quite well trodden, you know, yeah. that it just becomes a sort of job, job of a work. discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, and so I think the kind of 
you know, I think that you'd probably find there are quite a lot of cliches, uh, actually. Uh, mm. I guess that the really, you know, interesting example of this is Coltrane, who was really trying to push forward. And then that last phase of his just seems so much like somebody banging his head against a brick wall. And mm. then the great debate really is, you know, was Coltrane going to, you know, come through that, that phase mm. and emerge into some new level of you know great music making or was it just going to be more of this just screaming and clattering about yeah 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 um, mm. but yeah there's a real frenzied attempt to uh, to to keep pushing things forward in in uh, in in Coltrane but it seems to me like a, a yeah. dead end yeah okay so uh, you're um you're a fantastic uh, stylist in your in your writing so i think of like the the opening of Out of Sheer Rage yeah. is a kind of amazing saxophone solo where your, you know, uh, your mind keeps doubling back on itself mm. uh, and and it, you could almost call it Out of Sheer Cheek. You think, how long is he going to pull this off for? And, and you mm. carry it on for several, you know, 20 pages or so. And yeah. it's, uh, it's virtuoso. Um, and I, I, I thought of that when I was looking at Zona and you discuss Flaubert's idea oh, of yeah. a novel about kind of nothing that would yeah. be held together purely by the internal strength of its style. Mm. Do, you, do, you th is, is, do you think that style and wit and that kind of flair can be a sort of uh, replacement for the structural support of, like, dogma and belief in a, oh. in a, in a kind of Wildean sense? Like, we don't, mm -hmm. we don't have religion anymore, but we have wit. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot... God, there's a lot to unpack in that. Uh, mm. And I, my initial temptation is to answer yes but then I'm aware that actually there's all sorts of how, how wearisome I find it if it's just wit for example mm. um, uh, you know I don't I don't know what wit gives you apart from sort of wittiness ultimately <laughs> and I'm aware that other desires such as for narrative and all this kind of stuff um, uh, uh, come in so I don't know how much of a mm, sort of how sturdy an edifice you could just you can just build on mm. that I'm, I'm always I mean I I like writers who who are distinct stylists mm. but the writers I most like they're always much more than just stylists you know yeah um, and you talk about the risk of whimsy yeah what do you say about whimsy? I think it's like that it's there's a, no stakes that's it. right it's yeah. a low risk thing yeah. yeah so yeah I've always been hostile to the idea of that which is whimsical um so yeah, I mean yes, I, I I would just repeat what I've just said yeah, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, one of the th one of the stylistic things you do, which which, uh, which I think really works, is in some of your passages you repeat a certain phrase or word, like so often it becomes a kind of tranced out mantra. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that something you got your conscious of? Oh my God, yeah. And it, not only am I conscious of it, but I got it from Thomas Bernhardt. Oh, right. And Thomas Bernard is the most musical writer ever, I think. Mm. Uh, and it's just like listening to, um, you know, a quartet where you there'll be some little phrase that comes in and then it goes out and then it comes back again. So if you think yeah. about uh, his book Cor Correction, mm. you know, and in the opening paragraph, well, God, there's only two paragraphs in the whole book, but in the opening page, I think he uses this phrase sift and sort. And then it drops out of it and then the whole book in a way comes to a climax with this phrase sift and sort mm. and I got that I 
that I fell in love with that or became, I didn't fall in love with it, I became totally addicted to that, those Bernhardian repetitions. Mm, mm. And I say it's like a string quartet, but actually Bernhard is so, so driving. It's like the Austrian techno, yeah, because <laughs> it's really just, you know, really. So, yeah, I absolutely am conscious of it and yeah. I got it entirely and, from Bernhard. And it reminds me also of comic craft, the, ah, way, a, yeah. a, the way a really good comedian like Stuart Lee will repeat a certain idea or call back to it. And, to, and so it gets funny and then it gets kind of crazy and then it carries on and pushes through. Yeah. So it's comic craft as yeah. well. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Bernhard is the supreme, yeah. you know, the funniest writer right. that I can think of. And yes, it's mm. doing that. And, you know, my God, that, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so many bits where he'll just light on some sort of phrase and mm. it keeps coming back and it drives him mad and then he'll just break into hysterical laughter, you know. <laughs> I think that sift and sort bit there's mm. a moment when he just says something like and I kept saying the phrase sift and sort to myself over and over and like <laughs> broke out into laughter you know. Can, um, would you mind reading out a, 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 a brief passage which I okay sure thing for, well, just yeah. an ex- I mean actually there, there are two of them that I think are great one is from the new book and one is from um, Out of Sheer Rage um, I just love this bit I've marked it out okay. it's just where you repeat Oh, yeah. Phrase. oh yeah, yeah. This is so Bernhardian, yeah. Mm. Obviously the way to make myself more settled was to acquire some of the trappings of permanence. But there never seemed any point acquiring acquiring the aptly named trappings of permanence when in a couple of months I might be moving on. Might well be moving on, would almost certainly be moving on, because there was nothing to keep me where I was. Had I acquired some of the trappings of permanence, I might have stayed put but I never acquired any of the trappings of permanence because I knew that the moment these trappings had been acquired, I would be seized with a desire to leave, to move on, and I would then have to free myself from these trappings. And so, lacking any of the trappings of permanence, I was perpetually on the brink of potential departure. Mm. Yeah, total, total rip-off mm. of uh, Bernhard, that. Even the sentiments <laughs> are Bernhardian. Right, yeah. I haven't read any Bernhard, um, yeah. Um, but there's... Um, and there was this one. It's 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 briefer, but it's just a, a really. It's just this, this sentence here. I, I love the, where you repeat the word. You're you're talking about Gauguin and Van Gogh, and you repeat the word, nuts, and and it's a kind of variation on that word. Nuts. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Before Gauguin went to Tahiti, he lived for a while in Arles with the tormented genius Vincent Van Gogh, and they pretty well drove each other nuts. But of the two, Gauguin drove Van Gogh more nuts than Van Gogh drove him nuts. But that's not saying much, because Van Gogh was so highly strung. But that's not saying much, because Van Gogh was so highly strung, he had it in him to go nuts anyway, was partially nuts even before he went totally nuts. And actually, I would draw your attention to one of my favourite bits uh, of this, Mm -hmm. um, this kind of repetition bit. Mm. uh, And it's actually... uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. This is after they've left the hitchhiker at the gas station. We went on like this for a bit, but we soon ran out of steam because although we still felt a bit elated, we were starting to feel a bit ashamed too. And then, bit by bit, the elation ebbed away. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I love the way there that this boring word bit... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, has a, is doing quite a lot of the kind of rhythmic yeah. uh, driving work of, the, of yeah. that sentence. Yeah. Um, and I suppose repetition is also 
uh, it's ritualistic. It's kind of uh, yeah. man- mantra-esque and, and a bit trancey. Sure is, um, yeah. And I, and I think White Sands could be subtitled Ritual for People Who Can't Be Bothered With Dogma. <laughs> That's nice. Because yeah. there's, there's a lot of exploration of ritual. Yeah. You talk about a search, I think this is in uh, Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do It, for new gestures, new ways of articulating our need for grace and beauty. And in White Sands, you're thinking about how, how we mark off some spaces as kind of, you know, sacred of a sort and, and, mm. and some gestures and some rituals. And, but in a kind of post-religious way where it's almost like improvised and, 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 and almost like bricolage, like the, the Watts Towers that you yeah, visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that, is that kind of something, you know, like, you know what I mean? Because they're not, these aren't spaces that necessarily have been visited for centuries and centuries. Mm-hmm. These aren't rituals that have been done for centuries. But there's, there's, there's still, you know, that you can create your own. Yeah, um, so there's, yeah, God. And so, I mean, you know, the thing about, one of the things about Burning Man is that that's so intensely ritualized, the yeah. sort of format of it. And it's been very carefully thought through and it's cha- it's adapted, it's, so it's been arrived at. But yeah, I mean, I feel that's a, the experience there is very, very ritualized, you mm. know, and that crucial thing of the burning of the man, so that at that point, all the things that it, the man symbolizes is sort of being absorbed into the mm. community, blah, blah, blah. It's all become yeah. a bit of a cliche now, but mm. that's the most... Uh, that's the most thoroughly ritualized post-religious experience imaginable. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I describe you as a, a as a kind of post-religious writer interested in these kind of new gestures, new ways of articulating our need mm. for grace. Um, you don't um, you you don't really engage with um, you know. Christianity uh, and, 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 and that past, except um, obliquely in, in engaging with D.H. Lawrence and with yeah. Tarkovsky. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm reminded of the remark of Mingus's that you quote in uh, But Beautiful, like, you've got to improvise from something. Oh, yeah, yeah. He says to Timothy Leary, <laughs> yes. you can't improvise from nothing. Is that an argument in a way for us as a culture, to have some familiarity with our past uh-huh. in order to improvise new stuff off it. I see, yeah, but we're we're going to have that anyway because the, there are these churches everywhere, you yeah. know, they're all, they're all around us. Uh, but, you know, and I do really like Nietzsche's observation. He says, you know, when are we, where are we going to practice these sort of new beliefs that I'm going to usher in? He says, in churches maybe, and he says, no, no, they're too clammy with Christianity. And it's true, they are just so... You know, all of these churches get have you know to make money now. They're all every church is used for yeah, kind yeah. of gigs and yoga and all of this sort of yeah. stuff. But yeah, they feel very, they feel very, you know, uh, they feel specifically Christian, really. Yeah. In a quite, in a quite miserable way inside. Yeah. Um, uh, God, I'm forgetting what was the question. Well, I mean, again? I suppose in terms of how you your relationship to kind of Christianity oh, yeah. as a as a kind of post religious writer who's a, constantly interested in aspects of kind of grace of ritual of sacredness but um it's kind of you, you but you don't you don't really engage with christianity yeah. there's an elephant in the room well yeah i don't except what the thing that christianity always has going for it that mm. always uh whenever i see people emerging from a church and they come out or especially in america where they come out smiling and this mm. kind of stuff uh it's that in that you get in Christianity so much about kindness 
um, mm. and forgiveness and all of that stuff. And that is a real, I mean, there is real, you know, that is, that's a great evolutionary force, you know, yeah. in terms of our civilization, you know. So that mm. is, if at the moment, those centuries of, of Christian teaching, you know, that's one of the main engines of, um, of uh, whereby we're reminded of that. Now, of course, I would say, well, you know, humanism and all sorts of other ways can instill this importance of, uh, of, of kindness and treating others nicely. So you've written uh, two homages to, to D.H. Lawrence and to Tarkovsky. Yeah. Two um, incredibly earnest intellectuals who who saw themselves almost as, 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 as prophets whose works mm. of art could, could redeem a spiritually lost culture. Yeah. Um, whilst you, you were far more self-deprecating and self-ironising um, mm. um, and, 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 and modest in your estimation of what art today can do. But um, are you, is a bit of you drawn to that grander, more um, prophetic model of the intellectual? Uh, yeah, I, I'm drawn to those people, and, but, uh, you know, and I love John Berger, you know, who is completely yeah. uh, in that uh, in, in, in that kind of thing. Uh, I'm certainly, I'm not ever drawn to earnestness. I'm a great, I've said before, I'm such an enemy of earnestness, and I totally agree with Nietzsche when he says earnestness, ah, the sure sign of a slow mind. Um, so, um, you know, and Lawrence, I feel... He was in earnest, but actually he was too impatient and nutty to be an earnest person, you know. He mm. was, yeah, I mean, so, uh, and, you know, Lawrence is funny as well. Mm. So, yeah, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to those things, but I'm genetically so indisposed to going that way myself. Uh, I would say, in a way, it's perhaps, it's the higher, how do you pronounce this word, higher, hieratic? priest-like yeah. quality yeah, that, I, and, yeah, yeah. that I quite like in, in Lawrence yeah. Um, uh, yeah so that would be but my there's a kind of, that. I mean there's a complete absence of that sort of intellectual prophet figure at the moment in British culture would you, would you, would you agree? Uh, yes and in, uh, except that you know you get I you know I really get the impression that actually AC Grayling given half the chance would, would be uh, you know if there were a uh, he'd, he'd if there were that shaped hole, he'd quite he'd quite happily, you know. There, there's mm. some certain some sort of personality types that uh, yeah. would like to to get into that mm. would like would very happily whoosh into that back vacuum. Yeah. And also in that kind of you know the kind of self help guru thing. Okay, mm. so that you know uh, the kind of Bhagwan Rashnish you know cult figure that the you know, sort of Beatles all went crazy about mm-hmm. that kind of figure has been somewhat discredited mm-hmm. on the other hand things like the school of life and all of that kind of thing and all these various variations of evening courses that you can do now really mm. do uh, you know suggest that uh, um, uh, you know that, that hunger is is there that the intellectual can still kind of engage with mass culture yeah if you think i mean if you think of the alan de botton books you know they're all about how to how to you know how to make yourself happier and all, all this kind of mm. stuff you know mm. what do you think of them um it's not my thing at all it's mm. not what i would uh, i have no urge to 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 be any kind of um healer like that myself mm. you 
but I think it's uh, the 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 things that they're addressing are very uh, yeah they're very very palpable. The yeah, anxiety. Do you think, um, yeah. I mean, someone like do you think that an intellectual today can be a kind of um, a, 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 a moral leader in the way that Tarkovsky was? <laughs> Well, you see, I think Tarkovsky would be so entirely an artist, you know, uh, and most of the stuff he says about his film seems to me not very interesting. So, yeah, he's an artist, whereas it seems to me we'd be, when we're talking about leaders, then it's more people who have a kind of um, part of their being operating alongside their artistic side. So someone like Norman Mailer takes that to an extreme where he not only proselytizes but then actually runs for office yeah yeah you know um and uh you could yeah i mean yeah he's altogether less of an artist say than tarkovsky is but the best mm. of tarkovsky is to be found in the artworks and exactly as prescribed by lawrence you know that thing of trust the tale not the teller mm. you know um he seems quite a dogmatic figure in his thinking tarkovsky but you know, the incredible thing is that this straight-down-the-line Russian Orthodox Christian in the films leaves so much room for doubt because yeah. of that, because of, of what he is as Doubts an artist. And, and as a, paganism and... All of Yeah, all of that. Yeah, OK. And Lawrence, his great saving grace is his endless capacity for self-contradiction, reinvention, for completely renouncing something that he'd said just six months earlier, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. OK, so... Um, one thing you haven't explored much in terms of your exploration of peak experiences is uh, sport, which we, we oh, mentioned. Yeah. Um, there is a moment in, in yoga for people can't be bothered to do it where you're throwing and catching a oh, tennis ball yeah. in an infinity pool. Yeah. But um, have you ever been tempted to write about 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 kind of sport and, and, and the beauty of it? I mean, I know you love tennis, you love uh, football. Is that? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, the. You know, I was contracted to write a book on tennis and mm. then couldn't do it and wrote the Tarkovsky book instead of that. Right. So the, the relationship between this, you know, the, 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 there's Tarkovsky's zone. And, you know, if I was able to say, where am I most in the zone? Where am I happiest now? It would be obviously playing tennis. Mm. Um, and just those sort of, you know, that is it. And I particularly love, I hate almost everything that requires concentration, such as, you know, I never play chess, never do pu crossword puzzles or anything like that. But apart from listening to music, I would say that the concentration required by sport, tennis or ping pong for me, is that is just heavenly. I love that. Mm. Just that absorption in the moment. Yeah. Um, and it's to do with, you know, being a, you know, something to do with the body. That is just I just love that so much. And the kind of ritual of it as well. You've marked off this space and then invested it with meaning. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely. Even though ultimately it's sort of meaningless. Yeah. yeah, which is why that photograph of the, the goal post is so, so yeah. interesting, I think. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. That's mm. so, in terms of just that absolute absorption in the moment, which is something that all the professionals talk about. You know, you've got to just concentrate on this point and you mustn't think, oh, I've, I've almost won this game already. Yeah. You know, they all say that. Have you read The Inner Game of Tennis? Yes, I have, yeah. Good book, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I was just writing something about that just, just the other day. Mm. So, yeah, I'm completely uh, in all that. And mm. the incredible thing that happens, particularly with ping pong, uh, 
where it's actually you're doing things faster than is surely possible. Yeah. You know, because it's, you know, that thing when you just smash back a smash in, you know, whatever fraction of a second it is, that's just so wonderful because it's yeah. got sort of nothing to do with you as a as a self. Yeah. You don't really know how you did it. Yeah. yeah. And do you ever get those moments in writing? Yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, you have to really... Um, uh, uh, this distracted phase of my life with this book coming out. I haven't done any serious writing for a while, but mm. yeah, I have been in that place where yeah, this stuff just is just coming to you. Mm. But that's that always comes quite late in the day, and yeah. it becomes more and more because you know it's going to come late in the day of writing a book. Mm. You're more and more conscious of all the work that's got to go beforehand to get there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, in in Zona, you, you talk about when you when you when the bit where they reach the room and you say what what is my ultimate wish, yeah. and you say my ultimate wish for this book is to be a success <laughs> yeah. and to and to win and to win a prize, and I suppose like at the beginning of your career, you, you know, some of your early books, uh, uh, they didn't they didn't they didn't sell much, did oh, they? They were the later ones don't, but they they're <laughs> not as they're not a flops on the scale of the earlier ones, yeah, which just didn't. Just nothing happened. Yeah, it's yeah. a struggle. I mean, do you now? Because um, now you you do win prizes. You're you know definitely you're critically revered. Do you feel like as a success now? Uh, oh, definitely not. Well, I've <laughs> got that classic. You know, I still feel I haven't had my due. It's like that. You know, and, but then that's so common to writers. That great profile of Norman Mailer that Martin Amis did when he mm. realizes midway through talking to Mailer, he says that this most televised writer, this you know, the person more has got more publicity than anybody suffers from a crippling sense of neglect. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm really glad that you know. Mm. I mean, I've written a whole lot of books, and I think it's a quite unusual body of work. So mm. I'm really glad that you know, you know that it's that it hasn't complete. I'm glad it's all in print, and mm. I'm glad people are aware of it because, you know, I'm 58 now, so mm. it would be really. Jeez, I mean, I'd be really late leaving it for a late <laughs> surge. You know, we're we're into we're into injury time. <laughs> yeah. When did uh, when do you feel like you um, made it? Oh, you really don't that you you really <laughs> think I'm going to fall for that? When did you stop beating your wife? Question. <laughs> no way am I going to. Uh, well, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. Feeling I don't I've made it. Well, which of your books first reached uh, public attention? It's been so gradual. It's been mm. so so gradual. You know, I don't. I don't know. It's been, it really has been. What it was is that each of the books was just read by people interested in the subject, mm. and there was no carryover <laughs> from you know First World War to jazz or whatever. You know, yeah. to Lawrence. And then I would say, it really, wasn't until the yoga book that there that people started to think, oh God, this is you know this is the latest increment from this person. Mm. Who's, you know, so that was I could, that was quite a. That was, that was like 2000? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I've been writing for a good long while then. But mm. yeah, I'm really not going to not gonna fall into the trap of, you know, <laughs> he says he's made it. You know? <laughs> yeah. But you had a kind of, you developed a really good shtick of, you know, the, the, the writer who hasn't made it. Yeah, yeah. Loser novels, your girlfriend That's called right. it. Yeah, and yeah. Is, that, is it harder to, you can't do that shtick anymore. It's, you know, when... Uh, there are versions of it though, because James Salter went to his grave still being a, a kind of the writer's writer, didn't he? Right. You know, even mm. though he seemed to have enjoyed a colossal amount of uh, of, of success. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's I, mean, I don't know. I'm just, well, well, I'm sort of. It's interesting to me this thing of writing for a long time. You know, just how long you can keep doing it for. Yeah. Because so many things can stop you doing it. You know, mm. money, brain packing in, or your desire to do it can stop. Mm. You know, you might just not have anything more to say. You've got a really good non-academic attitude of, I just want to write about this. Yeah. I I don't need to be an expert. Uh, you know, I don't need to have read all the. You know, you're not crippled by that in a way a lot of academic writers can be. Who am I to write about jazz? Or who am I to write about D.H. Lawrence, you know? Absolutely, yeah, definitely not an academic, yeah. Yeah. Like, so, you know, like you, really, I didn't do mm. a PhD. I think it's a... Yeah, it's a, it sounds like you've got a very nice niche, though. Yeah, I mean, I definitely... I'm not afraid afraid to plunge in without credentials <laughs> or research or training. Your book sounds so great. It's a great yeah, subject. but I haven't I haven't uh, yet got to the stage in my writing where I can a- attempt the kind of stylistic maneuvers you can. I'm more. I, I still feel like okay, here's my topic. I'm going to try and treat this topic, you know, for the for the author rather than I'm just going to riff <laughs> in a way that you kind of I, you know. Yeah. In the way that you did in in, in, in I, and I wonder in out of sheer rage did did you kind of reach thing uh, of just thinking fuck it I'm just gonna yeah I think it was a uh, but yeah it was yeah I mean but that's the other thing I've said you know it was I've always been free to do what I wanted because the stakes were so low because it wasn't <laughs> like there was a readership that I was abandoning by doing some crazy stuff because each each book was just another flop really so it was I persuaded myself that yeah it was a good thing not to have an audience it was a good thing never to sell any books it might might have been sort of form of sophistry but yeah you know geez every hoop it was possible to jump through in order to make (laughs) what had happened to me feel like it was in my best interests I I went through maybe it was yeah 